बेसहारा जान कल बे आसरा मेरा दुश्मन एक जमाना हो गया आसमा है जुल्म ढाने पर तुला हल करो मुश्किल मेरी मुश्किल कुशा लो खबर खाजा मुसीबत आ गई आ गई सलाम एंड वेलकम एवरीवन टू अनदर एपिसोड ऑफ द अजम मीडिया कलेक्टिव पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट अली खरजू रावरी एंड वी आर लकी टू बी जॉइंट टुडे बाय डॉक्टर मन्नान अहमद आसिफ an associate professor of history at Columbia University and also founder of Chapati Mystery a sister organization which is a wonderful resource for all those interested in learning more about South Asia online Dr Asif joins us today to discuss his recent book The Loss of Hindustan The Invention of India which was just published in 2020 by Harvard University Press Manan thank you for joining us and welcome Salam Ali thank you so much for having me it's a great privilege to be with you and be with the Ajam collective and having this conversation. I'm really excited that you're here with us today because you unite in a single person many of my loves such as <laughs> Persianate historiography and poetry and thinking about the larger Ajam world and its many languages and religions and sort of what happened to it in the colonial history. And you really do a lot of this in in your recent work although including also in your previous work too. So just to start us off What was Hindustan? Thank you Ali. So, yeah, what was Hindustan? I think there are two ways that I want to think about that question from you. One of the ways I talk about in the book, I say that it's very difficult to write a history of something that we don't recognize as missing. So, the question of what was Hindustan in a sense for historiography doesn't occur because nobody understands there was a was uh, and further what Hindustan may have been. So one of the ways which I tackled the question of what was Hindustan was simply to say that when we think about ways in which pre-colonial spaces whether geographic or mental or cultural or social existed that way of thinking is the post-colonized have a very limited window to it it's very difficult for us to imagine that world because of the shift that colonialism does to our archive our way of thinking so in a sense what was hindustan becomes a question that says well we know what happened after and what happened after was british india and what happened after that was the republic of india and the you know islamic republic of pakistan and so what was hindustan is foreshadowed maybe to the point of erasure by the history that comes after hindustan But another way I want to answer I guess your question now which is not in the book is we think of kind of mental spaces of being and belonging as cognates for the nation state that emerges right so sometimes we draw parallels I mean we do this in sports a lot for any given sport there may be sport team name/nation and then you know people kind of became fan bases of that nation so nation state allows us to kind of think about proximity and belonging and fandom etc but i think in a way hindustan like ajam becomes a toponym but also a concept history of belonging and that concept history of belonging i feel has deep roots in both in history but also in historiography in poetry and language itself so what was hindustan i think hindustan was those three things is it was a geography 
that both people who were within the geography and people who were outside the geography recognized as that such. It had obviously porous boundaries. It had a shifting scale. There were borderlands. There were some conceptions of boundedness, obviously. It was a toponym, however, for a range of things that we can call mental constructs. And everything from adab to things like your dress or your cuisine or your poetry or your music. And, you know, in a way, Hindustani music still remains a thing kind of metonymically. And finally, I think Hindustan was also a cluster of habitations of people who imagined themselves inhabiting both the physical geography as well as the mental space and that you could assert that in your selfhood. So it was a self-identification that emerges as a part of Hindustan. And that's the world that I'm interested in. And I'm interested in kind of thinking about the pre-colonial world. I'm interested in thinking about these mental worlds that existed before Europe disrupts them violently. And I'm also interested in how self can be seen outside of the nation state and its hegemonic grip that it has on us because of very good reasons. As in, we need our passports and we need not be put outside borders and walls. But that's basically what I would say. You make the point throughout the book that we really can't approach the pre-colonial without going through the colonial first and understanding what exactly the colonial did. So before we move on to exploring sort of Hindustan, can you tell us more about how Hindustan ended? So let's get the controversial stuff out first, right? I think one of the controversial arguments, I don't think it's controversial, but I think other may disagree with me, is that I begin the colonial episteme very, very early. Some would say too early, right? So in the very first innocent William Fadden or just a young buck out of London who shows up in Surat, I don't differentiate between that episteme, that knowledge production, and the East India Company strapping human beings to the cannons and blasting them to bits in 1857. To me, they are part of the colonial episteme. So when did Hindustan end? In a sense, I trace a movement that begins almost with Thomas Rowe's first embassy and his efforts to kind of, quote unquote, translate what he's experiencing into his own narrative, but also into the first map that is made in London of Hindustan, which is then called the, the domain of the Mughal. And what I do in the book is I trace this building of an idea that by the 18th century or the late 18th century is the idea of Hindustan just supplanted by the notion of British India. And it's really British India that dominates the 19th century. So the birth of India and Pakistan in 1947 is really the breaking up of British India, not the breaking up of Hindustan. Hindustan, again, has been supplanted in many, many, many forms by that time. And so one of the things that the colonial space does or the episteme of the way of thinking about its present and our past is that it disinherits the concept from the physical geography. So Hindustan is parceled off into Mughal dominion in one hand. And as the Mughal dominion shifts over the course of the 17th and 18th century, 
Hindustan shifts such that by the 19th century, we are really looking at a very small kind of geographic space between Delhi and Bengal as kind of where Hindustan ends up being located for the British imagination. So one of the things that I feel very strongly we need to do as historians of the pre-modern or pre-colonial, but also historians who who I call in the book post-colonized historians, historians who are coming from spaces that were previously colonized, is to think about this slow process rather than the immediate fast process, or not just the partition of 47 or the uprising of 1857, but this very slow process through which Things that were familiar were made unfamiliar. Things that were home were made unhome. So Hindustan goes through this process through various means. One of them is, of course, cartography and mapping and depictions and labeling of cities and areas. But the other is the kind of selection or the archive making. So what does an archive for what the British say now is Mohammedan India rather than Hindustan? So what is the archive for Mohammedan India? What languages does it live in? What does the archive of Hindu India and what languages does that live in? So the creation of scripts, the creation of these types of kind of modalities of thinking about the past dominate such that by the 19th century and even in the 20th century, we cannot escape that. And we ought not to escape it. So one of the arguments, again, maybe controversial, is that pre-colonial or pre-modern historians feel complacent or confident that they can jump over the colonial period, right? An argument can be made. We're thinking about the 11th century, the 12th century, the 13th century. Europe is nowhere in the picture in Hindustan. Why bother? Why bother about whatever they're saying or doing in the future? Like, why can't we imagine that world? And so one of the arguments I'm making is that it's actually impossible for us to think about that world without thinking through the colonial time period and the colonial apparatus and that's both in this way that colonialism reconfigures forms of knowledge, but the way colonialism reconfigures the archive, reconfigures basic categories of meaning. This is a really important point, and it seems to become more poignant the earlier historians work. So the, those who work with the far past are the most seemingly blind to the fact that the colonial archive is still dominating how they see the past. Could you actually go a little deeper into that? But first, towards your focus, which is on Firishta and Firishta's history written in the 17th century, who is Firishta? Where is he writing? (laughs) Firishta is someone I've been living with for a few years now, which is fascinating just because I've tried to picture him in my mind for a long time. Like, what did he look like? I assembled a mood board of various Dakini individuals, Dakin being contemporary Hyderabad and, and some of the areas around it. I built a mood board. I, I started putting Dakini individuals in it. I stayed away from the kings and the sultans. And I said, you know, he's got to be someone who's kind of working class guy. I mean, he's got an appointment in the palace. He's uh, Sometimes he's given a, a job as a palace guard. Sometimes he's given a job as a diplomat. Once he has to take a princess to be married off to Jahangir. He's also a surgeon. He's a medical expert. He writes a book on surgery. And uh, and I was like, in my head, I was like, you know, Frista is probably like, just like scarred and stuff. I mean, if you think about someone on the battlefield. And then a Gentile, who is a, a French diplomat and a soldier who's with the Mughal court in the 18th century, who also 
gets a Jean-Baptiste Gentil, who also gets a rendering of Farishta done from some artists in Fezabad. So I found his manuscript at some point, And in the manuscript, the 18th century imagination of Farishta is there. So there's a pictograph of a gentleman who's sitting down writing. He's a learned person, learned in the sense that he's someone who sees his primary task as having to do with words. Even though, like I said, he's uh, in, on the battlefield, he's trained in the medical arts. So that ended up being my kind of mental image of Barista. As a learned gentleman, very calm, committed, with so many talents and so many other kind of directions, with, you know, deep friendships with philosophy and these major poets and these major intellectuals of the Deccan, in and out, uh, living with them, hanging out with not just the Bijapur sultans, but also embassies to the Mughal court. The part of the story of Farishta that fascinated me is in his very voluminous text. The critical edition is in four volumes. There are these accounts of him basically fighting people for manuscripts. And he's like, you don't need it. You don't know how to read it. Just give it to me. (laughs) And especially this drunk librarian who controls the whole archive. Farishta is like, I had to sit for three nights watching this man drink and eat until he was out of his senses, just so I could have a moment of six hours where I could copy this manuscript from which I needed to get my sources. So I I saw a lot of uh, parallels to how you end up doing archival work in India or Pakistan to to the 17th century. (laughs) And he's working primarily in Persian, but he also knows Sanskrit, right? I think he definitely was able to read certain texts. I don't know how high his level was, whether it was Sanskrit or whether it was Appa But there is definitely, he cites both verbal and written communication in his, in his writing. Yeah, And of course, Dakini is the language that is emerging. And his history is written in Persian rather than Dakini. I wanted to ask, what is, about Farishta is actually unique in, in terms of Persian historiography? Because he is different than other. And so why, why is he an important point to look at? Um, the, the, there are two ways in which I answered this in the book. One is that Farishta is unique because he sets out to write a unique history or a new history. So to take his authorial claim seriously right? I mean, many, many, many authors say this is the, you know, this is a jadid or a new, new thing that we're doing. Here's a historian who's saying, look, I understand, I've read these histories and I have really, really capable peers. Totally. I'm with them. I'm reading them. I'm, I'm engaged fully in this project, but I want to write something that looks different, is different. So I take that seriously. And I say, yeah, this is something that is, is unique because it comes with a very specific intent, the authorial intent of creating something unique. Now, what formally I think happens is that while other histories of his contemporaries focus on a ruling class or ruling personage and their genealogy or a particular region, a particular area, and to give a history of that particular area or to give a history of that particular family or to put it under in a kind of cosmology, right? So from uh, Hazrat Adam all the way down, you know, whatever cosmology, whether it's legible within the Islamic paradigm or not. What Farishta does is he takes as his topic, to use a modern term, Hindustan, which is a geography much more expansive than a region. But it has many different kinds of polities in it and has many different kinds of rulers and many different kinds of cosmologies. 
So the newness of Farishta is, is both that he's kind of jettisoning established forms of historiographic thinking and writing for what he argues is the centerpiece of historical thinking, which is Hindustan as a, as a concept. And that within creating this concept of Hindustan, he's also giving very different origin stories for this world and actually elevating it discursively to above any particular polity. That's a radical move that we don't actually see. I mean, we can, you know, in a way, when I, when I say this out loud, people are like, well, sure, we have histories of France that are not histories of, you know, the Bonaparte, uh, or we have histories of Germany and that are not Kaiser Wilhelm. But that's what nation state is doing, right? That's what the nation state ends up making an argument for. And what Farishta is doing, I think, is creating a mental map that can accommodate both people, as in political power, but also cosmologies, different cosmologies. And I find that to be uh, radically new, in fact, and successful in, in that he, he pulls it off. What are the violences that you have to be aware of and how do you navigate around them to reach that 17th century point? I can answer it by an example. So when I began thinking about Farista seriously, as you and I do, or as any other scholar does, you turn to your library and you say, okay, let me find out what my elders have said about this. So you go to the library, you look up what's been written on Farista and in the Persian historiography edited volume that just came out recently, is not even listed. He doesn't even exist. So I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of tough, tough beginning. But that tells you something. It tells you that the Persian historiography has a view of the world and what constitutes it. And Farishta does not seem to be a part of that. Okay, all right, valid point. And then I began to read other works, other historians, other philologists. And what I discovered is that there is an idea that Farishta as a text, as a historian, is maybe derivative. He's saying things that have already been said before. He's a far removed from the place of action, as it were. He summarizes a lot. So ways in which we, in the today world, tend to talk about things like originality, authenticity, impact. If you think about these words, they are formed by our association with our academy. So one of the things that I discovered was that the colonial state, especially in this 19th century formulation, shapes this discourse about Farishta, calls it in a certain way, all of these things, derivative, summaries of other histories, etc., etc. And when I began to trace this backward, what I see in the colonial state is that in the 19th century, when I go back to the 18th century, is much of the 19th century discourse on Farishta is a result of colonial translation or what I call on the text renditions of Farishta in the 18th and early 19th century. So in a way, they are kind of responding to their own archive. The colonial historians are responding to their own archive, their own as in European archive. And the ways in which Farishta is framed, even for post-47 period, ends up being indebted to the very categories that colonialism has framed in its encounter with Farishta. So to the question that you asked, how do we think of the space in which we are entering? You know, how do we think outside of this colonial episteme? One of the important steps that I had to take was to trace this very journey to say, look, I'm not going to start with just the kind of stated one line, Farishta is derivative, or Farishta is a summary of other historians. That seems to me a way of which I can, as a historian in a 2020, 
I'm still shackled by the colonial historiography. So part of the effort of the book was to actually say, what does it mean not just to read Farishta as if I am reading him in the 17th century? Because as I previously stated, you know, that's an impossibility. But rather to flip it and say, what did Farishta read for the composition of his text? And how do I see his composition from his past? Instead of me being separated by 400, 500 years from Farishta, Farishta is also separated by 400, 500 years from his sources, his archives. And in order to do that, I think I had to enter the domain of philosophy of history. So how do we think of history itself? What are the agents? What are the ethics? What is the motor that history? And then I began to think about the roots of philosophy of history. And I started to read Voltaire and Kant and Hegel and all of these figures, Herder, etc., Schlegel. We know who kind of gave us the building blocks of what constitutes philosophy of history long before, you know, critiques of this come in from people like Depeche, Chakrabarti, and other scholars who have kind of obviously much more eloquently and in a more systematic way, challenged some of those notions from the 18th century. But what was interesting to me was as soon as I turned to that archive and went to their footnotes, who do I find? I find Farishta. And so then I was like, oh, so now it's not just me thinking about Farishta in the 17th century and what Farishta is reading. I have to actually start to theorize how to think about history itself. That actually became the book, in a sense, very early in the, in the process of thinking about it. And I guess that's the joy of beginning a new project that you bite off <laughs> a lot more than you can ever swallow or even chew. But that was the starting point. And then, you know, I had to kind of make the decisions that we all must make, which is what's doable. And what's doable ended up being focusing very much only on historians and only on the work of history. And, and that's how I kind of made my way through Farishta's centrality to the project. Two parallel projects, the project of Hindustan, but also the project of philosophy of history. One important thing that you point out is how in the 18th and 19th century, the colonial scholars are translating, reading Farishta. This is informing all the sort of demigods or God, I don't know what you want to call them, of history as a field in Europe. And this is really interesting because that sort of generation of translation happening in Hindustan, it is an amazing view into what was considered important before. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because there are poets who are being translated and published who no one even knows about. There are historians, there are legal treatises. So there's a lot going on. But one could be naive and be like, wow, these Europeans really appreciated whatever. I mean, if we want to be naive, but in a sense, it's their works of translation. It's their works of using it as raw history for their theorization that leads to erasure, that leads to being like, this is not important. We got rid of this. So could you actually talk more about that before we shift to Persianate historiography, which is very different in a sense? That is, how did the theorizations that Europeans did based on these translations that they were making, how did that actually kill someone like Farishta? I mean, that's a fascinating and really critical to the book, that question. What is happening is just as it's happening in Europe itself, a canon is being made. So these are not asynchronous or diachronic activities. Europe, especially Germany and, and England, are making their own canons at the exact same moment. So Gibbon translates and writes about Thucydides exactly how he's doing his, his own historical work. So just as a canon is being invented for 18th century Europe, for Europe's own 
past and obviously Europe's engagement with the colonial world in the global south as well as in the North Americas, you see them doing the same process of canonization for Hindustan. What that requires is, first and foremost, how do we create a list of notables and who gets to be included? Now, as Edward Said taught us all, the first stab of this is that you go through Islam rather than anything else, right? You don't go through Persian historiography or Arabic historiography or poetry or prosody or any other regime other than religion. Religion becomes the primary way through which the past of the Hindustan has to be approached. So the thinking about religious texts becomes important for the colonial regime. And then they have to kind of solve for Hafiz and Saadi and some of these Rumi and some of these other texts that they make into spiritual or sacral text in order to understand the significance of it. Canonization is part of this sacralization effort that is happening. And same with the you know Vedas and same with the Shastras and same with the Kavyas and same with, with the Sanskrit and Pali texts. And within that canonization process, in the earliest part of it, and that would be mid-18th century, Farishta is extremely important because Farishta allows them to create a list of texts that they must read in order to understand pre-Farishta. So Farishta gives them the first kind of bibliography for Hindustan. Once that bibliography is identified, like, so once they have like Juzjani is the text that we want, Akbarnama is the text that we want. You know, once they create this hierarchy of texts, Farishta then begins to dwindle out as derivative, summary, etc., etc. So his own text disappears, even though what he had provided to the colonial state in, it, in, in their understanding of the text remains extremely important. There are two emphases that I think are important. One is the emphasis on thinking about historiography in a particular register for a particular segment of Hindustan. So making a clear dividing line between Mahabharat as a epic myth, romance, and not history, and um, something like Juzjani, who's a 13th century historian in writing in Persian, as history, however flawed or complicated. Why is that distinction new? Because Farishta himself, in his history, very clearly begins by saying, like, the mustanad, the most authentic history of Hindustan is Mahabharata. We're going to start with that, and we're going to think of Hindustan through all of the story of Mahabharata and how this world came into being. So that's Farishta's starting point. But in the rendition by Europeans, there is a line drawn. So Mahabharata becomes fiction and history is put into the rubric of different script, really. You know, it's what script can history be written in? It cannot be written in Sanskrit, for example. So that process begins in the mid to late 18th century, but is naturalized by, I want to say, even the very first decade of 19th century. It's completely naturalized. That generates a lot of historiography that then is about the aesthetics of Sanskritic texts. So you can see by the time Hegel gets around to these texts, you know, he's very comfortable in saying like Indian aesthetics, mood, passion, all of that stuff is on one end of the spectrum. And then whatever we want to call for history, however boring it is that the Arabs do and the Persians do is on the other end of history. 
what falls into the cracks are precisely texts like, obviously, I don't use this example lightly, but texts like the Shahnameh or texts like Nila Daman or texts that Lila Majnoon, texts that don't actually fit this dichotomy between poetry, poetics, epic, and history, historiography. Those texts, some of those texts, are reinvented <laughs> in the 19th century and the data 20th century, of course. I understand that part. Shahmanami's discovery is another story and you're probably more familiar with, obviously. Another example that I'll quickly put in is, is something like Tabari. Tabari becomes, has been, at least for the 20th century, if not the 21st century, the first starting point for thinking about Arabic historiography. And it's the canon, right? Like, what is the history of Islam if you don't go through Tabari for whatever reason you want to go through it? Tabari is a discovery, very much so, of 19th century Europeanists. Farishta saw no need to go through Tabari. Tabari was not a text that was on his horizon. or I mean, he knew about it, but it's not something that is necessary for him to think about nor any of the other world historians who are writing in the 15th, 16th century. So Tabari doesn't exist in a sense. It does not exist. And now then in the 19th century, when one of the characters in my book is this Austrian Alois Sprenger, who's an employee of the East India Company, becomes the principal of Delhi College. He goes to the Nawab of Awadh libraries and he discovers one of the Tabari missing volumes and he writes, you know, this is it. We finally found the beginning and now we can kind of put the set together as it were. And that's entirely a fabrication. I mean, the fabrication in the sense that this is a canonization of Islamic past that is happening in the 19th century European intellectual history. But that's not something that I see scholars of early Islam take on. This idea that these particular texts are canonized by European thought in a particular moment. And we continue to think along those lines. We continue to kind of wrestle with these texts. How many dissertations we have about Tabari's idea of X, Y, or Z. Not saying that's not important, but I'm just saying that there may have been other ways of thinking about the past, even as late as 17th century, that opened up other venues for us to think. You're hitting at some sort of a classical European approach, right? Like mine these things until there's nothing left and then keep the oldest, which you think is the oldest example in your nice museum piece and be like, this is all that's important. But this gets to, to this larger uh, question of Persianate historiography then. Persianate historiography is fascinating. And the very fact that Europeans engage with it is also interesting because of what they ignore in it. And it's that Persianate historiography brings together many genres. I mean, the, the, the very hadith that they're sort of picking out or the Quran or poetry or what is what, what, what was to Europeans secular, worldly, even sort of you know, inappropriate with sacred and lofty and high, well, a good historiographer writing in, in an Islamicate language knows how to bring that all together. So actually, could you talk more then about this notion of, of a text, which itself is, we call it tarikh, but it, it combines so many different things. In itself, it's, it's an archive, right? It's actually funny, not in a haha way, but funny in a sad way. <laughs> We have to do a lot of mental gymnastics in order to stick to the plot line that we have for Persian historiography, um, just to specifically speak about it, in a way that we don't even for European historiography itself. So I mentioned Gibbon, right? So you look at Gibbon's fall and decline of the Roman Empire. Standard, classic text, you know, written in the 18th century, mid to late 18th century. We understand it as history, 
we understand it is that, you know, a stab at kind of thinking about the, the relationship of the British Empire to the Roman Empire and all of those things. In the writing of that text, if you read that text, you will see that Gibbon is, discursively speaking, quite, uh, I want to say, fluid. I mean, he is didactic in places, he's poetic in places, he's citing from various sources in different ways. I can cite people like Carlyle, Thomas Carlyle, or other historians who are, in terms of genre, in terms of what constitutes history, are quite diverse, right? Their, their writing itself is very diverse. And then when we fast forward to, you know, the Annal School or the French historiography, and, you know, we, we, I mean, I remember picking up Braudel for the first time and being like, oh, wow, you know, or me picking up C.L.R. James and being like, oh, wow. Like, one, one can say this is history, but is as much poetry, as much ethics, as much philosophy, as much a deliberation of the artist slash historians own intellectual space as it is, you know, a, 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 a something about a particular time or place that we're trying to learn from. All of those things, we can pick up a particular Persian historian, poet, and their particular text. And if we find them in them, we say, well, that's not really history. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So when we, when it gets to the word tarikh, we're like, well, tarikh is something really, really, really specific. So if there is a, you know, if there's a romance, quote unquote romance, if there's poetry, then that's not really tarikh, right? Like it might be something else. The word history only translates to tarikh if it has this formal structure or if it's written in a particular form. That's mental gymnastic. That's like crazy thing. So what is happening here? Two things are happening. One, we are not putting European thought into genres. They are above genres. They get to play around. They get to do whatever they want. And we get to be their subject. We get to be ourselves in particular boxes that we cannot escape or overflow from. Tarikh must only mean one thing. Someone like Khusro, writing in the 14th century, is titling his what we what what's cataloged in the British Library as a romance, this story of Khusro Khan, and he calls it his tarikh. It's his history of, and he knows. I mean, this is Khusro being an eyewitness to accounts that he himself he's a teacher to Khusro Khan. Now it's in Masnavi form. It's about love. It's not history. Why is it not history, my friend? There's a way in which European thought has tended to dominate even our inquisitive nature, even the way in which we pose a question. That has escaped notice, I feel, has escaped notice. I call historians that I read, that Fristad reads, historians on purpose. My first book ended with an account of a, what we can call like a keeper of a cemetery that I met in Uch Sharif. In the account uh, that I narrate, he gives me a history of Uch. And I give him a history of Uch. And in our conversation, these two histories are not resolvable. We, we don't have the same account of Uch. And I ended that book by recognizing the irresolution and leaving it at that. Just saying, like, I don't know. Just because I'm getting a PhD or have a PhD from University of Chicago and I have a job as an assistant professor at that time in a history department, that my history tends to dominate, has to be taken up by, by, any other, you know, by, by him as more authentic. And I called that gentleman a historian deliberately because I wanted us to recognize that claim of history cannot simply be rested upon 
the European philosophy of history. And, you know, I got reviewed mercilessly for that. Um, my, my esteemed European um, reviewers were not happy with that move. Okay, I mean, that's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I actually have no problem with it. But that's why I very deliberately called Hindustani historians, Hindustani historians. Not because I want to have them fit the definition of history that Europe has, but rather I want to complicate the definition of history that Europe wants to have. And I think in that regard, this idea of what constitutes narrative writing about the past, if we can just take that kind of bland descriptive question of genre and the question of intent have been disjuncted. So even if a writer, an author says, I'm writing a history, which Shahnameh does, or Lala Majnu does, or, you know, they say, well, this is a history, I'm going to tell you history. We say, no, 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 no. This is, this is really poetry. This is really, you know, a romance. This can be enjoyed with a glass of sherry, uh, but let's not build anything on top of it. When we take these texts at their word for what they, what their, what their own epistemic ontological thinking is and what they're trying to tell us, I think it's our ethical duty to engage with them on those terms. If that ethical duty makes us rethink our categories, all the better. That's the real struggle in kind of thinking about Persian historiography. The textual past has to be challenged. That's actually a really fascinating point to, to contrast with the, the, the situation of the nation state, right? Because in Farishta's work, what you're depicting is is sort of thinking about Hindustan in a way that can accommodate, synthesize, harmonize difference, that the Mahabharat can be a source of history equal to Persian historiography. Whereas now, when we think of, of India, I mean, and obviously I'm thinking now about the contemporary situation in Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh, which, like many other parts of of, of of that world, of Ajamistan, of the larger sort of, uh, it doesn't look good because the the mental space of the modern nation state actually has no room for difference. It has no room for, you know, types of understanding the past that are that are not easy to re- reconcile. And no one's willing to do the work of Firishta to try to reconcile them. So in a sense, is there anything left of Hindustan? And is there a future left for it? All of us, whether we are we are associated with Ajam or Hindustan or or even um, America, I guess, um, must confront the tyranny of majority in 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 the spaces that we live in, and we must um, confront that tyranny not because our own selves and our survival is dependent on it, but also because. I think the lack of any other type of thinking is a handicap that we face. I feel that at the moment that we live in, and I think it's perhaps most clear in the United States and the UK, um, which has just gone through Brexit, that the capacity to imagine another in a sympathetic, empathetic way has just disappeared, literally disappeared. We just can't do it anymore. I end the book by thinking about a few historians who are writing in the 20s and 30s in in British India. And these historians are medievalists, so I found myself affinity to them. They were thinking about the same texts and the same sets of issues that I'm thinking about in a sense. And in the 20s and 30s, they were able to articulate a threat that they saw in the future, that if this form of majoritarian thinking is not um, confronted. And here they're meant colonial episteme, colonial thinking. 
it will result in great amount of bloodshed and, and great sorrow. And as a historian, we're very comfortable refusing the charge of the future. You know, we are very comfortable in saying, look, we're, we will look back. We don't look forward. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, that task is for a politician and maybe for a poet, but we don't do that kind of stuff. And I think that's, I don't think we have the luxury of that kind of an attitude. I think these historians in the 20s and 30s were able to look forward precisely because they were historians, precisely because they looked back and said, oh, this is what has been happening and this is the logical outcome of, of that train of thought. And I feel that it's incumbent upon us, whether we're historians of the United States or the historians of uh, the Middle East or of South Asia or whatever constellation we find ourselves in as historians um, or as intellectuals of, of any sort, who at least are committed to thinking uh, outside of majoritarian boxes and who at least are committed to thinking of equity and ethics and, and dignity for all human beings, that we think together and think ahead and, and, and in our writing and in our, in our work, able to tell a story of the calamity that surrounds us all unless we do something. And something doesn't mean that we are on the street. Of course, it should mean. But it's, it, you know, in my case, personal case, I feel that writing this book was important for me precisely by letting people see a, a world that was once possible, not to go back to that world, but to simply say, hey, we can also create a world that is inclusive. <laughs> we don't need to go back to first the 17th century. We can build a different world in the 21st century that's inclusive. Like Farista is not some genius out of time. He's just a you know a gentleman in a particular corner of the world. Um, has no great claim to anything that we may not have that to. So how about we now in our worlds, in our individual worlds, in our collective worlds, imagine better futures and put them out there such that the only voice you're hearing is not the voice of the nation state and its majoritarianism. Manan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ali, for having me and giving me this opportunity. It's a really pleasure to speak with you. For our listeners, his book, The Loss of Hindustan, The Invention of India, is available at Harvard University Press. So I recommend that you all go and buy it or get it from your library and read it. And as always, if you have any questions, leave them in the comments and we will put you in touch with Dr. Ahmed Asif. Thank you. Thank you.